Welcome to the first episode of what we are calling Breakdowns for Breakfast. If you're listening to this when it has first come out, you may have just eaten breakfast or you are eating breakfast right now. And if you are listening to it while you're eating breakfast, I at least be done cooking it or putting it together if you're eating a bowl of cereal. But regardless, we are here. I am Danger and that is Monster. And after we recorded our TRL episode, we you know, talked about how much fun we had talking about music and how much fun we had kind of diving into it. Now, Monster and I are, are two musically-centered people, and we decided to take our conversations we have on the side and, you know, his love of 311 and my acceptance of 311 is still here, you know, and many, many other things. And we've decided to put this into here, where you guys can finally uh, hear and hopefully enjoy what we have to say about these uh, these these albums, these things. And we're going to be talking about any album that we like, and sometimes defending, sometimes both of us gushing on it, one of, sometimes one of us not liking it all. <laughs> and that's just what this is going to be. Who approached me about this idea, my first thought was, there are so many cool bands and albums from the late 90s and early 2000s that I love, that I feel like never got a fair shake. And this gives me an excuse to ramble on about them. And like you said, hopefully some people will tune in, learn about a band they didn't know or an, an album they didn't like. They'll give a second chance to something like that. Um, I think this will be cool if, if people actually like listen to what we're saying and then check these records out. I think they'll have a good time with it. Yeah. Monster and I have a fairly large library in our brains at least of bands and albums that we would love for other people to hear of and listen to now there's a little part of me the 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 13 14 year old you know kid inside of me that's like no don't share those are your bands those are bands that you know about and albums that you listen to you don't need to share those with other people no we are in an age of screw all that. <laughs> no, nope, nope, I've never been that guy. I remember there used to be a little record store here uh, in our hometown. Well, not anymore, but in Greensboro, North Carolina, called the Record Exchange. The Record and Exchange they, was great. I loved that place. And they used to have these little sampler discs called Monitor This. Yep, and I one, had quite a few of them. Yeah, me too. And one of my favorite things to do was to listen to that hear a song and be like immediately tell my friends hey guys you gotta hear this band you gotta hear this song this is gonna be huge and I was in my little friends group I was the first person to turn them on to Papa Roach to Disturbed to Linkin Park I think I just dated myself very clearly with those <laughs> references but like I love being the guy to tell people hey you gotta check this band out I know you like this band you should listen to this band. So that's why I wanted to to do this because it was an excuse to actually like do that, hopefully on a bigger scale than just like the three friends that still hang out. So you talked about dating yourself and you and I are the same age. We are both 37. We are months apart from each other, but we're the same age. And so we had a lot of the same musical, you know, stepping stones, but we had a lot of things that were different. For instance, I was really big into the early 90s grunge stuff and mid-90s stuff. I, I ate that stuff up. Now, 
I'm into the much heavier stuff. Still love that other stuff. One of my favorite bands is Pearl Jam. And you are much more into the new metal stuff, the rap rock stuff. And and that that's fine. You know, you can be wrong and like that stuff. That's okay. But when when I was a kid in the 90s and I heard stuff like Nirvana and Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and stuff, it was like, I'm not angry. I'm not cynical. This this doesn't speak to me. So when I heard No Doubt and 311 and Sublime talking about feeling good and having a good time, that made more sense to me because that was the upbringing I had. Now, if I was a depressed little loner like you were, then maybe I would have gravitated towards more of that angsty stuff. But I was a positive kid. I was having fun. I was a depressed kid, a depressed social kid. Okay. I wasn't quite a loner. Depressed 37 year old man. You know, we all have a station in life. So on this first episode, an album that I loved when it first came out. And I'll tell you where I found this album and where I picked it up. But an album that I loved when I first found it. I loved the band before I found this album and their two previous releases. And Monster, I know that you have a connection to this album specifically, but you and I actually, you found that I had this album in my car one night and you put it on and it was like a holy shit, you know this album too. Like nobody knows this album. Yep. And it was a great, great moment. So tonight we're going to talk Finch's lesser popular album, Say Hello to Sunshine, an album that I hate that it wasn't as popular as what it is to burn it was, but, you know, we can get into that. So I'll tell you mine real quick, and then I want to hear yours. So I was living in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, 19 years old, I think, and I I found a a record store there. I didn't really have any friends there. And so I just kind of did a lot of stuff by myself, that depressed loner thing that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, So I found this record store and I decided to go check it out. And I knew what it is to burn. I had their EP they put out before that new kid. Great, great EP. I think it's like four songs, five, if you count the hidden track on it, but Oh, which the, the EP actually had a different version of the title track. What is to burn? before that album actually came out, which was fun. So I found that album there and I just, I I would not let it go. I don't know how many other things I picked up, but I did not put that one down. And when I got back to my house, I put it in and it didn't leave my, uh, my CD player. I, I think it left my CD player to go to my truck at the time. And that was all I listened to. So, uh, Say Hello to Sunshine came out in 2005. And around this time I was playing in a band that was kind of like post-hardcore, emo, screamo. We were big fans of stuff like Thrice and Taking Back Sunday. And we all had What It Is to Burn, and we all loved it and thought it was great. And then Say Hello to Sunshine came out, and I remember my friends being like, this is terrible. Well, by 2005, I was starting to get into Corn and Limp Bizkit. And, Which I mean, was, I was a little starting- bit late for... Oh, I was going to say, I was already into a lot of that stuff, but, but, you know, like I said, I was playing in this style of band. So for me, what it is to burn was the, or, uh, excuse me, uh, say hello to sunshine was the perfect meld of that pop punk post hardcore stuff that Finch was doing before with the new metal dark kind of aesthetic of, you know, corn and stuff like that. 
And I remember the first time I heard it, that opening line, oh my God, I think I'm blind. I was like, yeah, yeah, this mm-hmm. is good. This oh, yeah. feels really good. And yeah, I still, to this day, it's one of those albums that to me is kind of timeless. Like it yep. feels like it could have came out in 95, 2005, 2023. Like it's, it's its own thing. It doesn't sound like any other record ever. Like, I mean, I honestly, like there's other bands that have that post hardcore darkness to it. There's a lot of influences you can hear on this album, mm-hmm. but it is, it's wholly its own thing. For sure. Oh yeah, and I couldn't help but hear a lot of Mike Patton and Faith No More influences on it, and I, I come to find out that there was a lot of those influences on it. But I was also listening to a bit of Faith No More at the time, and I was like, "Wait a second, there's there's a lot of this feeling in it." But it was basically this album where this band that had put out this album that was quite frankly overproduced, and now. What Is to Burn was a great album. I I love that album. I I have a copy of it upstairs. But it was something that fit right into the moment that it came out. And it was a great album for when it came out. And it was a step above what was there at the time within that genre. But it really kind of lived in that moment. What Is to Burn, or excuse me, Say Hello to Sunshine, You're Right, it's timeless. It has a sound like nothing else had at the time. Like when I listen to Hello to Sunshine, I hear I hear the glass jaw. I hear mm-hmm. the corn. I hear at the drive-in. Mm-hmm. I hear all these post-hardcore, weird, not, I, I hesitate to use the word prog, but these experimental kind of bands. Whereas what it is to burn slotted in perfectly with Thursday and what it in in uh, brand new and those bands and I like some of those bands too, but say hello to sunshine has this darkness and this macabre thing to it mm-hmm. that nobody else was doing at the time. And again, so to, I graduated high school in two thousand four, and I would say about two thousand one, two thousand two, when I started high school is when I really started to fall in love with horror and. The, one of the cool things about Say Hello to Sunshine is the music is it does the music and the, the vocals definitely go hand in hand and it's all very dark oh, for yeah. the most part. But there are tracks that have some fairly poppy and like post punk kind of pop punk sounds to the music. But then when you hear his vocal delivery and you actually read the lyrics, you're like, oh, Oh, this is really sick shit. <laughs> well, I compare it to whenever you hear a song that sounds really happy. And the one song that comes to mind anytime I have this conversation is No Rain. It's a song that sounds by Blind Melon. It's a song that oh, yeah. sounds oh, yeah. happy and fun, but it is a sad, depressing song. So let's jump into the album. Now, Monster, I know you did a song-by-song breakdown, and I did a breakdown of quite a few of the songs, but I want to dive into the track listing, basically. First off, I want to stop and say that this was an album that they showed, they took a three-year break, and they came back, and whenever any band takes a break like that, they 
they run the risk of coming back and having less fans than they had before because they kind of disappeared. At this time, there were so many of these bands that were coming out. Yeah. But within this time, I don't know if you know, but they actually dropped their founding drummer, Alex Pappas. Yes. Which I think actually took a took them to a new level. So, and I could not find this when we decided we were going to talk about this. I tried to pull this up, but when I was a younger, I used to read Circus Magazine all the time, mm-hmm. and, and I used to hang out on MySpace all the time, and I remember very clearly there being an interview with the lead singer, um, what's his name? Uh, Nate Barclaw. Barclaw, that's right. Um, with Barclaw, and he said... And I think he was referring to the drummer because I think that's the only member that swapped. But he, if was I understand correctly, yeah, they they purposely like he was more of the pop punk emo guy, and when he left, they decided to push themselves into the direction they kind of wanted to go more into, which was more of an influence by Faith No More, grunge bands, and then also some of the stuff at the time, the new metal stuff like Deftones and Corn. Right, and it's funny to me that you said the grunge stuff didn't resonate with you, but this album was so highly influenced by the grunge stuff. Well, I will say a big part of that is the guitars. Okay. Because if you if you really listen to what they're doing on this record, the guitars in and of themselves are of the time. They have that jangly, like Midwest emo kind of chord progressions, but then they'll throw in that fifth or that weird dissonant chord progression Mm -hmm. to give it that little bit uncomfortable sound. Whereas a lot of the stuff in the early 90s grunge was real straightforward power chord stuff and this this, we'll save this for another episode but you know when I think of like guitar stuff and people talk about like Nirvana and early Stone Temple Pilots and Pearl Jam and stuff, it's like, oh, that guitar stuff, no. Like, I don't like it. But but what they're doing here is, again, just like everything else on this record, is wholly their thing. Like, mm-hmm. there's, it, it sounds very distinct. There's, there's elements of those weird dissonant high-pitched noises that Korn does and the weird, like, you know, power chord stuff of the, the grunge era but it's still its own thing. Like oh, it yeah. still sounds like nothing else. Oh yeah. And I'm going to actually go against something you said before about you wanted to stay away from the term prog. And when you and I first listened to this album together in my car that night, I, the best way I could put a label on what this album was, it was by calling it, um, avant emo, like avant garde, you know, and emo avant emo. That's not a bad way to look at it, but I feel like this album is so much more proggy than anything else because I feel like one of the defining features of prog is that they're not afraid. They're not afraid to breathe within that that space that they're creating within that song and really grow its sound in a different direction of what they did before or what anybody else is doing. And and it's one of those albums for me that I really feel like you, you can't call it a concept record necessarily, but I have, I struggled to find very few records that have such a vibe from start to finish. Like every song shares this sonic space, but, but they, the songs don't sound the same. 
No. Like they're very, every song is unique, but they all share this vibe. And I, I, I again, to the prog com- comment, when you think of prog music, you think of tempo changes. You think of weird chord progressions. You think of odd choices when it comes to melody and vocal patterns. All of that's here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's delivered in a package that is dark and foreboding while still being catchy and, and you know, pop friendly. But, yeah, there's some weird decisions oh, yeah. go on in the music here. Oh, yeah. Sure. All right. So the first song off the album, Insomniac Meat. Like if you if you don't know what you're getting into and you haven't read the title of the first album of the first song, you're missing something within it. The title Insomniac Meat is visceral <laughs> in its own. I don't think this is necessarily one of the best songs on the album, but it absolutely sets the stage very well for what you're getting into. Oh yeah, very much so. People coming off of what it is to burn, expecting that kind of sound, expecting those kind of songs, immediately are met with that line of, oh my God, I think I'm blind in this weird whiny kind of weird whisper crackle thing. It's, it's very like I, to this day, when this song kicks in, it, I'm ready. Like it, it, speaks to me <laughs> and i'll say something and it's i'm going to say it a couple of times throughout this uh throughout this breakdown that we're doing but what you just said kind of leans into something that i want to get on so barclaw has an, the ability like he pushed himself as a vocalist because what it is to burn was very straightforward as far as vocals go this mm-hmm. he ranges from dark and moody a growl a scream a whisper a melodic tone i mean he is all over the place and he pretty much packs that all into the first song yeah and it's like you said mike Patton. for for people that don't listen to a lot of faith no more um everybody knows the song epic and when everybody was yeah when i was a kid the first time i heard epic i thought that was two vocalists there was no way 
that deep guy rapping and that high pitched singer was the same guy. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly what Barclaw is doing here. It's yep. low, it's high, it's growling, it's screaming, it's pretty, it's uncomfortable. Like it's it's the full range. And like you said, it, he hits you with it right out the first song. Which let me say, um, went to Blue Ridge last two years, Blue Ridge Rock Fest, and I'm going this this year. And I realized something within this that almost all the bands that I wanted to go see, their singer does that on stage. Like one guy will go between the melodic to the whisper to the uh, to the growling to the screaming, does it all. And I don't know of anybody that truly did it beside Chino Marino, which if you want to hear more on Deftones, go listen to the Is For A Podcast TRL episode. Probably come up on this show too, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think they will. But nobody else really did it aside from Chino, which Deftones has a big influence on this album. But Nate Barclaw did it in a way that nobody had done it before. And I've, I've seen videos of them performing live and he does it all on stage. So, you know, I don't think it's overproduced. And that's one of the big things with this album is you could tell the producers don't have their hands on the faders and and go to town on it. It is a straightforward album. It's exactly what they want it to be. It's it's almost shocking that Ross Robinson is not the producer on this album. Yep. Agreed. Because for for anybody that doesn't know, Ross produced a lot of the early new metal like corn's first couple records like that raw uncomfortable like not everything is always in key sometimes it's a little bit off tempo like that was ross on purpose like mm-hmm. there's there's stories about when he produced the first slipknot record where um cory taylor's in there doing vocals and they're chucking potted plants at him just to like get him uncomfortable and disheveled and stuff was it that- him that threw uh like a lit candle at him to get the hot wax to hit him to get him to scream. I'm sure it was. Okay. Uh, one of the most uncomfortable things ever is watching Jonathan Davis from Corn try to do Daddy, which is like the worst song ever. Yeah. And Roth is like six inches from his face, like, do more, do more, go, go more. And Jonathan's literally sobbing, trying to get the vocals out. Mm-hmm. And Roth is, you can do more. It's like, that guy is sick. Yeah. But anyway, but Say Hello to Sunshine has that feeling to it. Especially like I don't I don't know the full story behind the lyrics on this record, but every song is like some kind of like horror movie motif. Um it's so like some of the lyrics are so creepy. So speaking of the lyrics, let's jump into song number two, Revelation Song. And this was one of those songs that when I heard the lyrics, 
and it was after a few times listening through to the album, a few times after hearing the song, I tuned into the lyrics and I heard it. And this was the only track on the album where the band just, it was a just direct song <laughs> where they're just, I, it was a song of resentment to the fans. And it was, you know, they, they had this enormous success after what it is to burn. And then it was all pretty much pushed by the drummer they had. And every single one of them was like, this is not what we want to do. And, you know, and it's paired well with, like you were talking about, the odd time signatures of the music itself, of the new drummer, and the lyrics just, the vocals, the lyrics just match it perfectly the entire way through. I, I like that one a lot. Uh, the The combination that I heard on that one was, it's almost like pop punk meets Deftones. Mm-hmm. Like, still has a little bit, I will say, in, in my opinion, the first couple tracks kind of try to keep Finch fans in without hitting them over the top of the head with the fact that, hey, we know you like what we used to be, but we're not that anymore. Um, but I think when you get into tracks three and four with Brother Bleed Brother and A Peace of Mind, which I, I'm sure you'll have something to say. Yes. That's my, that is my favorite track on the entire record is A Peace of Mind. I feel like that's when you start to kind of get to the real three, four, and five, five ink. I think those are the ones where it's like, oh, these guys are really weird now. Like, yeah. if, if you were a fan of what it is to burn and you were expecting another Fallout Boy, Taking Back Sunday-esque record, when you got past the first two or three songs and you were in the thick of this record, you were like, oh, shit, this is not the same thing anymore. All right, so let's talk track three, Brother Bleed Brother. So Barclaw's voice and lyrics are dark the entire way through. There's no levity within any of it. And the it's almost like the rest of the band are just given a workout to keep up with what he's doing, to make the music match what he's doing. It's like he came to the table and was like, guys, I've got these lyrics and I'm not giving up on this song. We are doing this one for the album. But the part that got me the most about this album, about this song that I love the most is the breakdown part of the song. The snares on the downbeats, the just, it's a technical masterpiece, in my opinion. It's just, it is. So for anybody listening, I've been in several bands over the years. I've played everything from rap rock to country to hip hop to straight metal cover bands, whatever. I'm not a drummer and I don't pay a lot of attention to 
drum tone and that kind of stuff, the nuance there very much. But there's something about the tone of the snare on this record. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I really like. Now, being a 311 fan, I like that really high crack of a snare. Yeah. Um, this doesn't have that sound, but it's still very distinct. And I, I agree. And I think on this song, you really hear that glass jaw in Oh, yeah. Which oh, reminds yeah. me a lot of like, um, uh, what was it? Worship and Tribute, their second record. Um, what was that? Uh, Metropolitan Blood Loss or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. But maybe we'll I tackle, think, uh, maybe we'll tackle that album. I'd love to. That yeah. is a, oh, a that's an all timer. But, uh, but yeah, like you can tell Barclaw is a fan of, uh, Palombo or however you say his last name from, from Glassjaw for sure. Well, Glassjaw was another one of those bands that just did things real different, but somehow yeah, stuck out similar. longer than this out, this Finch album. Yeah. And, and it's funny because Glassjaw to me was put it this way. I love worship and tribute. I think that's, they're probably Glassjaw's best record. I would put this above that. Okay. For sure. Okay, sure. so now let's talk about your favorite song off the album, track yeah. four, A Peace of Mind. What do you have to say about it? Why Why is this your favorite? So I love the way it starts with the, the first guitar comes in and it has those chords, but then it also has that just like muted sound. And then the second guitar comes on top of it with this like real jangly kind of single note. It feels very emo and pop punk. And if you didn't know the context of the record, you would think, oh, this is just a really like a prettier song by my chemical romance. Like it wouldn't feel dark and foreboding, mm-hmm. but it's like after those first three tracks, it it's like unsettling that it's so pretty. And as the song goes on, like the lyrics are, you know, as soon as the lyrics kick in, he's talking about creatures with bangs and going insane and taking medicine and dying and all this shit. And then by the end of the song, you get into that little breakdown that's very new metal, like that mm-hmm. da 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 da, and you got just the beat going, and it feels very bouncy and groovy, and you can just picture like the crowd bouncing to it. To me, this song encapsulates every like the best parts of every quality on this record. Well, this is a song where he does a lot of the going from soft to the melodic and then to whispered, he doesn't really do a lot of the screaming at much of all. Like he sounds a little unstable at a certain point, but yeah, you know, they could have kept the guitars simple and the structure of it all is, is pretty straightforward, but they could have kept the, the uh, guitar simple and straightforward like they did on what it is to burn, but they didn't. 
They didn't no. at all. They went into it with uh, just an absurd rhythm to play. And I I love that song. I, to be quite honest, like I've listened to this album more times than I can count, but there's like after Ink, we kind of go into a black hole. Um, like Fireflies um, and I think it's Hopeless Host because I, I remember a couple of them, but after, so after this, funny. it starts to kind of fade out for me. It's funny you should say that because I was listening back to it today and I was like, I like the first couple songs, but it's really Bleed Brother Bleed that really is like where it really starts to hook me. And I would say like tracks three through ten is like the sweet spot. Like the first couple songs are good warm ups and the last couple songs aren't bad, but I feel like that chunk in the middle is where it's like every song has something cool going on. You might not love the chorus, but the verse is really neat. Or there's this bridge that goes way off the deep end and does something wacky. So I had a theory for a long time when it came to CDs and albums, and when they were still putting out the physical CD instead of just releasing it digitally. But there was something about more in a CD format than in the album before or digital format afterwards. But it was this running thing that tracks three, seven and 10 all had to be bangers. Like they all had to hit. And it's it, it on any album. That's a good album. Those songs are the best songs off the album. Can I tell you something? Sure. As a guy who predominantly did the set list for live shows and the track listing for the records of the bands I was in, 3, 7, and 11 okay. were the tracks that I made sure were bangers. Okay. Now, so I wasn't wrong. <laughs> no, you are dead on. <laughs> it depends on how many tracks because when I, I remember some of my first bands, it seemed like everybody was releasing albums that were either 10 or 12 tracks. So we always tried to put a couple extra on there, like 13 or 14. So if it was just going to be like a, a 10 or 11 track album, three, seven, and 10, you're exactly right. But if we're going to go 13 or 14, you make that third one number 11 so you don't lose okay. steam. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. It was just a theory that I had for a long time that, Three, seven, and ten had to be the best songs on the album. And here, I like I didn't know I was a genius this whole time. <laughs> Which is funny because on this particular record, uh, track seven, Hopeless Host, is it, it's it's okay. Like it's not one of my absolute favorites. But number ten, Miro. It's a great I song. Actually heard, I actually heard someone compare the verses to three eleven, and I never heard it that way before. But I definitely feel like. As dark as this record's been, as dark as the lyrics are on every single song, there's something almost like whimsical about yep. the verses of this song. Yeah. And it's at track 10 of a 14 track record that's been this foreboding. It feels good to yep. have that in. Um, uh, so let's talk about track five, Ink, before we jump ahead to those. Oh. I love Ink. That's another one of my favorites. Ink is a really good song. So 
I the only notes I took on it are it reminds me of early Biffy Clyro, which okay. If, okay. okay. If you don't yep. know early Biffy Clyro, go back and listen. Um, Ink is actually uh, structurally a very simple song, but it's played really, really well. But they mess with the time signatures and dynamics within the song, and it could be a much more simple, straightforward song, but they chose to not do that, which is another reason why I love this album. It's one of those songs that sounds really complicated until you can remember you can count to three. Right. And then it's not so hard because it does that right and, it's like, and then at certain places you have to count to five yes but that's it so, <laughs> so it's one of those songs that like when you're so used to four 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 track of a track of a track every single song of what it is to burn is four four right you know? then you get to this one where it's like it's not complex necessarily but it's out of the ordinary, right? Which is just kind of almost the slogan for this record. Like it's not that complicated, but it's so unique that it feels even more so. Right. All right. Track six: Fireflies. I told you Fireflies is kind of a dark hole for me within it. Like listening back to it, I remembered it, but it's not a standout track to me on this album. This is another one of those ones where if you just heard the lyrics, if you just like the, the hook of the song, it's almost like a love song. Like the fireflies illuminate your eyes and it's real this bright, shiny chorus, but it starts with this weird distorted bass and has these like creepy moments. Another, another, great song to me yeah no that's that's fine just again the middle of this album just kind of fell apart for me but it's like the beginning and the end of it were great were, See, and, were fantastic and i'm actually kind of uh, i don't want to say the opposite because i do like the start of the record but the last two or three they're fine but i don't think they're as strong as some of these in the middle so, okay, number eight, reduced to teeth. Thoughts on this one? So I remember the first time hearing this one, hearing the Atari sounds at the beginning of the song yep. and be like, okay, that's kind of cool. And then you got the moody vocals and again, not to, you know, a lot of the same tropes that we've heard in the songs before. And right. then the chorus kicks in and he just like so clearly and prettily sings, I buried my wife today. Right. And, well, and <laughs> and that's the thing about it like that's one of those songs that the song doesn't really stick out to me but that chorus does yeah. yeah you know and anytime i listen to it i can't tell you 
a word within it, but that chorus will always jump out to me and I will always jump into singing that chorus. Now, whether or not those around me want to hear me sing it, it's a different conversation, but I I will always jump in and listen and sing along to that chorus. Now, and, and I don't know why I want to sing that I buried my wife today, but I do, but you know. <laughs> And, and maybe it's just me, but I feel like this record, every song, like there are certain songs where, God, the, the vocal delivery is just magnificent. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I remember how the music goes, but the vocals here. And then there's other songs like like we just talked about with, with A Peace of Mind where it's like those guitars at the beginning and then that riff at the bridge. Like, yeah, I remember the vocals and some of the lyrics, but like, the guitars are what I remember on that one. So it's like, even if every single second of the track doesn't work, there's something in every single one of these songs that makes me go, God, I love this part. Like, I, I want to listen to this song so I can hear this again. Okay, I'll give you that. Like, not every song jumps out to me on this album. You're bigger fan of the middle. I'm a bigger fan of the beginning and the end of this album. But... You know, we obviously have a lot of crossover within it, but every song does have at least a part. And whether or not it's the chorus or, you know, some other part of the song, the musically, the entire album is great, but there is a part of every song that does jump out. You're right. And and with that being said, again, none of these songs sound the same. No. But they all feel connected. Oh, absolutely. Like, every one of these songs feels like they belong here. There's not a song that you go, ooh, that one's weird, or why are they doing this now? Like, some bands can get away with that. And and Finch, I mean, hell, just what it is to burn versus this, back to back to Oblivion that they put out after this. Like, all three of those sound like different bands. Right. I mean, but every track on this album feels like connected to the others. So I think there's a couple different types of albums. You know, you got your album where bands will go into the studio and write, let's say, 30 songs and get 15 songs out of it. Let's just go with 15. So, okay, they put out a 15-song album. Okay, cool. So you've got these songs that you throw away, and they usually don't do anything. Maybe they play them on tour. Then you have your your bands that go into the studio and put out a concept album. You know, one of my greatest, one of my biggest bands for me, you know, uh, Coheed and Cambria, love that band. Every album is a concept album, except for uh, the worst album they put out. Um, I'm not going to talk about it. But but then you have... Sorry? I said we might one day. Yeah, we might one day. But... (laughs) There's other. There's another thing that bands do. There's another type of album that bands do that I don't think it's talked about, and I think this fits into it, which is an idea album, where it's they go in with an idea of what they want to do. They don't go in with everybody having these different influences of things. They go in with this idea of we want to do something different. We like this, you know, this evolution that we're doing live and in practice. So. Let's create an idea. And when you create an idea album, every album or every song connects to the last one. And you, and one of the things they do on this album that we haven't talked about yet is there's little parts all throughout it that if you go back, you listen to it, really listen to it with headphones on, they will pull little, you know, riffs from other songs 
or Barclay will pull a line of a lyric from a different song and they'll put it in and it just kind of connects everything all together. And I think it's fun. I, I like the way that you presented that because I've always struggled with this because, you know, again, my favorite band is 311 and 311's put out a lot of records and the one they put out in 1997, Transistor, is considered by a lot of 311 fans, if not their best record in their top three or four. It's, and, it's my favorite 311 record. And I would not call that a concept record. No. But very much like this, Everything is connected. Like there's this spacey, weird vibe that runs through every single song. And even if the lyrics don't necessarily tell a story, they're all about like these metaphysical forces and spiritual feelings and galaxies and planetary stuff. And I think this Finch record has a lot of the same tropes. None of the songs sound the same, but like you said, Barclaw will throw in little lines. There's these little references to other songs. Like mm-hmm. this feels like one whole body of work. Right. Like this is one of those records. I, I see bands do this all the time where they're like, we're going to play this record from start to finish. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. There's like five or six good songs, three or four filler songs. And then one or two songs that even you probably wish you didn't write. Right. But this feels like one of those ones that you would like to hear from start to finish. Like, and I feel like if they were to play this live, they could it could be one of those things where they let the guitar keep going between songs and never break and it would never it, the mood would just be right the entire time. By chance, did you listen to the bonus tracks that were released in other countries? I probably have because I've listened to a lot of Finch and I dove deep into finding as much stuff as I could about him. So I probably have heard him, but I so don't. So to be honest with you, I may have at some point, but I did not remember them. So I listened to the UK only bonus track, which was called GAC 2. Yes, I have heard that. And then the Japan only, which was called Spanish Fly. Yes, I've heard that too. So, yeah. I felt like GAC 2 felt like a demo. It was cool. It would definitely fit the vibe of this song, this record. It needed to be fleshed out more. Yes, yes. Spanish Fly. It's sung entirely in Spanish. Mm -hmm. It's acoustic guitar and vocals. But the whole time, there's all these weird ass sound effects. Mm -hmm. There's these, like, there's wind blowing and it sounds like a ship creaking and all this stuff. And I honestly think. I would have preferred that to be track 15 on this record as opposed to ending the way it does. I don't hate the last track on this record, but to me, it's not, I, 
I don't know. Like that would have been a cool way to finish this record. All right. So the next track that we're going to talk about is probably my favorite track on this album, A Man Alone. And okay, I and I know I said like the middle kind of falls out for me, but I love this song, and I think I under I think I figured out why I like this song because this is the first time that we hear blues swing emo. <laughs> yes, yes, this one has this like doom 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 yeah. doom. It has a totally different rhythm, right? And if you listen to the words, if you if like go and read the lyrics, not a swingy fun song by any means. A bit far. No, no, but like it just it felt very schizophrenic to me because he does go from like the uh, like the swingy to screaming, "You son of a bitch!" Yeah. <laughs> and it's old man loneliness is a son of a bitch or something right. like that. And. I I had a lot of fun listening to this track off of it. I probably went back and listened to it. I don't know how many times. I think I played it probably 10 times today alone. <laughs> and I'm not somebody that listens to the same song over and over again, but I love that song. So. Keep going. All right. You mentioned this before, but Mira. Track 10. So Miro's one of those ones where, like, right this second, I can't tell you exactly how the chorus goes. No. Nope. But I can hear the verses off the top of my head. So that's that. that um, uh, okay. So I did write down the chorus because I never remember. Uh, like, if the song is on, I can go right along with it, but I can't pull lyrics out. The temple is me. Something to believe in is something to be. And yes. As you read that in your monotone voice, I can hear the melody. Like the temple is me, something <laughs> to believe in. Okay, so Miro is a fun song to me. They still keep some of the jazziness in it, and in yeah. the guitar riffs and all. And yeah, it, it's it's a fun song to me. Like it's this is where the album really starts coming back. And I know I mentioned um, a man alone, which to go back, a man alone could do no wrong. Sure. <laughs> I've done plenty of things by myself that are wrong. <laughs> you know, I felt like this song, Miro, was where they really, like, I, I guess A Man Alone to this is where they really started to, like, stretch their prog muscles. And this is where the the prog stuff really started to come in, which is where they started to go, you know what? We're not afraid anymore. This is the album that we're wanting to make. This is the album that we're going to make. Here you go. So, and I agree with you. And then when it goes into the next track, Ravenous. It's almost, it, it's still, again, like I said plenty of times already, none of these tracks feel out of place. But this one feels more chaotic. And it felt very aggressive. Yes, which 
at this stage in the record, you could use a song like that and it doesn't feel out of place. But there's something about the vocal delivery. I like the part where he does that, that like, like on, on hit with the, with the music. But this one is one, this is part of like when it starts to kind of, for me. Right. Like this is the last three or four is when I start to, I don't check out. I still enjoy it, but I'm not as invested as I am in the songs before it. So the next out, the next song on the album, Bite Marks and Bloodstains. So they had to pick a song to release as a single. They had to. Why? Why this one? I don't know why this one. This is not the one that I would have picked off of it. But this is what they picked. And then they made I don't know if you've ever seen the video for it, but they made a weird video for it. Yeah. And it's almost like a zombie apocalypse movie, but not quite. It's like it's it's all just like the people and I thought I took it as like they were escaping from like an alien invasion, but when aliens are invading, where are you gonna go? You know, like they, and that's why I think I took it as zombies, and maybe just because of the name, bite marks, and maybe it, and 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 that added to the confusion of what the song was, and you know, a strange one to put out as a single from the album because it was so dark. His vocal lyrical styling was all over the place for what it is to burn. Like this one to me feels like a real middle of the road track. Like yeah. this is. Not the worst song on the record, but it's nowhere close to the best song on the record. And you know you're going to alienate some fans by going into a different direction. You either hit them with as weird as you're going to get. Say, hey, look, this is the direction we're going in. You're either on board or you're not. Or you release a song that has elements of your old sound in it. Right. To just say, hey, look. We're still the band you love, but we're going to try doing more of this. This doesn't do either one of those things. It absolutely and does not. So I still don't know why this was the single. Because, yeah, I remember the first time I heard this, I wasn't sold on it either. No. It wasn't until I, I heard the album from you know track one to track two to track three that I was like, I love this. When I first heard this, I was like a lot of Finch fans probably was like, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know if this is what you should be doing. <laughs> and a concept album usually has a song or two or part of a song. I mean, you know, an album that we'll probably do at some point, the Mars Volta, Francis, the mute that had, yeah, um, I'm not, I have the album, but it was one of those things. I have to do that one. I, yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> uh, so I have the album. I think I've listened to it. Uh, I, I haven't listened to the album in at least after the first time. Okay. When at the drive-in broke up, they created two bands. Yes. Sparta and the Mars Volta. Sparta is far superior. Thank you. Okay. We are on the same page on that one. Okay. Please continue. All right. So when you have an idea album like this, it's really hard to pull out a strong single, a strong song to put out for people to hear to go hey you know we're still the same band because if you're doing something like this 
you're going to be changing sounds. I don't think that was the best choice. I think that this is an album, like you're saying, you really didn't like it until you heard it from beginning to end. And idea albums, I think, are best heard from beginning to end. Plain and simple. You have to listen to the whole thing. And and it was it's one of those things where like if I would have heard just ink, just fireflies, just bleed brother bleed, like I, I I've or brother bleed brother. Right. Um if I would have heard that, I would have been like, Oh, this is cool. I like this. It's weird. It's different, but I like it. But this song, it just it just kinda meanders. Like yeah. it doesn't really like it doesn't have one of those parts that really like like resonates. You. Yeah, like I I like the little chimey guitar in the verses, but it just I don't know. Like I still don't understand why this is the single at all. All right, so let's talk about track thirteen, the casket of Roderick Usher. Which I uh, want to take a second to talk about how that's a badass song name. I, I love that song name. And I'm sure you know what it's a reference to. Uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe? Yes. Okay. So, Which is a very gruesome story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I have one note on this song. Dillinger Escape Plan. I heard someone else reference that. And, and in my notes as I was listening to it, this is how I described it. This one is borderline scary because of how unhinged it is pretty abrasive pretty abrasive from start to finish extremely dark even by this record standards Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh yeah definitely i feel like this is a song where they went (laughs) and put out a song this one is as mean-spirited and as dark as you can go yeah. on an album that has already proven itself to be a very dark record. I mean, to follow a song, you know, a couple tracks later, uh, Bite make, bite Marks and Bloodstains, <laughs> that's not as visceral and seething as this song is. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Track 14. Dreams of psilocybin. (laughs) Yeah, so this is one to me that, like, honestly, I remember kind of getting to this point in the record, and when he's, for anybody that doesn't know, this song starts with Barclaw, having a battle with Tourette's or just having a breakdown. I'm not really sure, but he's like grunting and like struggling to say sentences. It's real uncomfortable. And sometimes I just turn it off before he's even done. Like I'm, I'm just done before the song even kicks in. So I know I've said before several times, beginning and end of this album is where it, you know, is, is what I really like. This song was one of those. The first time I heard it, it was like, "Is is my radio still on? What's what's going on? Like, what's what's happening?" But like, the yeah. more I've listened to it, the more I've come to like it. And I can say, like, I can't pick, like, I I wouldn't go to this track, but as an end to this album, especially following the casket of Roderick Usher, yeah, 
I think it fits. I think it works. This one to me kind of feels like that GAC 2, the bonus track on the UK edition. Yeah. It doesn't quite feel finished. Like, like I feel like they got this really cool intro that they wanted to use and they had this song that was like 90% there. It, again, this feels like a good place for the record. Like it feels like this should be near the end of the record. It fits. It's still in the same sonic space as the rest of the album. I don't know. This one, this one just doesn't hook me as much. I think that that's, I think what you just said is actually why I like this song, especially as the closer, because it is a darker album. It's a more guttural album. And this song just fit that so much better than everything else. And it just closed it out with the feeling of the rest of the album. It does, but I just, I don't know. Like, to me, something of a slower tempo, again, like I said earlier, again, that Spanish fly song, like right. as weird and creaky and bizarre as some of the soundscape is on that song, like I feel like would somehow be a good bookend here. This feels like a song that could have been cut and I wouldn't have missed it. I don't hate it. It's just to me not one. Like if I was doing a list of my favorite songs on this album, this would be in the bottom two or three for sure. So this is not at the top of my list, but I feel like it's a great closer for this album that where they come back and they do something so different and they end it with something even more different. It it does. it uh, Again, like I said earlier, in most of the bands I've been in, I've been the track order, set list order guy. Like I, I like doing that. And to me, uh, where else would I put this song? Like, like it feels right where it is. You could shuffle around maybe the last two or three, but this feels like where it goes. It goes at the back end of this record. So, all right. I do want to pull this together with what I felt like was a great summarization of what you and I have been saying. And I, I came across this and I thought it was great. All right. Say Hello to Sunshine is a deep and challenging listen that deserves to be reevaluated now, a decade since it's coming out, which I don't, it's more than a decade now, right? I don't know. Anyway. Um, 20 years. It's been 18 years. Shut your face hole. That's crazy. It really is. Its rejection upon release was unwarranted. It contained some of the best rock songs of the last decade. Again decade, alright, uh, maintains a uniquely dark atmosphere for its duration and features some wonderful production. It is an adventurous and brave record that not only demands a reevaluation but requires one. And I think that that actually is something that you and I have been talking about pretty much this whole time, about how this album deserves to be revisited in its entirety. In its entirety. Put it on in the background while you're doing stuff in the house or sit down and put on some headphones and listen to it. I think this is a headphones record. Like I think if you're, I, I mind, agree with you. If you're in the right mindset, driving in your car or or hanging out in your house, it can work. But when you're like today, for example, when I went back to to go through this, I was doing work with my headphones on, and I could hear the nuance of the tones and the melodies, and it was like. There's so much stuff going on. There are so many layers to this record. 
that I think you miss when you're driving down the road or you're washing dishes, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think we're, we're going to come across this on a lot of other records you and I talk about on this show. If this came out today, people would be losing their shit mm-hmm. because it's so unique and adventurous. Right. But when this came out in 2005, nobody wanted unique and adventurous. They wanted, we like your last record. Do that four more times. Well, whenever a band puts out an album that is good, that that does gain a lot of mainstream success, they want that same band to put out the same thing. And, you know, especially when you have a member change and that member had a lot of influence on the previous album, you know, it's not going to be the same thing that comes out. You know, one of the, a prime example that I've, you know, talked about is when Blink-182 lost Tom DeLonge. He, you know, the sound of Blink-182 changed, but then Tom went on and did Angels and Airwaves and people were like, we want more Blink-182. And he's like, no, I want to do something different. And he did, but people expected that. That's why I, I think that's why Angels and Airwaves never made it. But this is not an Angels and Airwaves episode. Um, I don't really want to do an Angels and Airwaves episode. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't really want to either. But hey, Blink-182 is like back and they're all back together. And Yeah, you know, they are. Them. They are. So, all right. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Breakdowns for Breakfast. Hold on, Monster. Hold on. Hold on. Go on. When we were discussing this before. Okay. We agreed on a way to finish these episodes. Okay. We've talked about a lot of things within this, so I've been texting for like 48 hours straight. Um, At the end of each episode, me and Danger will give you our rating from a scale on how we feel about this record. Um, So I'm going to give like a real brief kind of summary and then my my grade. Okay. So uh, a lot of this I've kind of already brought up, but I wrote a little thing here. So very few albums have a vibe from start to finish as strong as this one. It's not a concept album, but it feels deliberate from start to finish. Every song shares a sonic space while sounding distinct from each other. The album before this, What It Is to Burn, had a much more commercial appeal. It was a lot catchier with pop punk and post-hardcore elements. It had very little darkness like this one does. It made for a great record, but it sounded like a lot of their peers in the emo, post-punk, pop-punk kind of era. Very few other records sound like Say Hello to Sunshine. There's elements of post-hardcore and grunge and new metal and even prog, and it all has this dark, foreboding tone that creates a mood and atmosphere all of its own. You can hear the glass jaw, you can hear the corn, you can hear the at the drive-in, but at the end of the day, it just sounds like Finch, mm-hmm. Say Hello to Sunshine. It's Agreed. its own I think tracks from about three to ten is kind of the sweet spot. Danger's kind of on the opposite end of that. But on a scale of one to ten, I give it about an eight. Okay. I actually, uh, I remember you talking about this or bringing it up of scoring the album. And I thought this album, I feel like we need to kind of come up with a caveat within it. Is it a good album in its entirety, or is it a good album with a few track, a, a, a album that has a few good tracks on it? And so this, I will say, is a good album all the way through. And to that, I will give it. I'm going to go eight point two. 
Okay, so uh, we didn't really clarify exactly how we were going to do the 1 to 10 scale. I was thinking, 1 to 10, hey, you want to throw in a fiver? Sure. We're going to go 8.2? Yes. Jesus. 8.2. Okay, sure. 8.2. Why not? Yeah. So, um, I don't have uh, my calculator ready to do averages, and I'm not that good at math, so, you know. I agree with you. I agree. I think that Yes, there are, to me, two or three standout tracks that I prefer to the rest of the record, but it, it feels like a complete work. It feels like if you, if you cut a slice out of it and you see this pie at the store, you're not going to buy it because it's missing something. Right. Like I feel like from start to finish, every track is important in its own way. Right. Absolutely. So now can I... Close this up? Yes, yes, please. Okay, cool. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Breakdowns for Breakfast. Uh, I appreciate you sticking in for this long. This actually went longer than we had originally planned on. Far longer. Oh, yeah. But some episodes are going to go longer, obviously. Some are going to be shorter. This album has a lot to talk about within it. And there's going to be other ones that have a lot to talk about in it. I I don't think double albums are two episode <laughs> uh two episode worthy, but there's just a lot to this album that deserves to be revisited. What so so what is the next album we're gonna talk about? Oh uh, the uh Pulse Ultra. Sorry, I was trying to remember. You you had brought up Pulse Ultra to me earlier. I have never heard of Pulse Ultra, and I could only find the one album by them. Oh, they did. Okay. So Pulse Ultra, what's the name of the album? Headspace. Headspace. Not not to, to get too far ahead of ourselves, but anytime a genre of music becomes popular, you will see there's the big names, the big dogs that, that like champion the genre. Every record label that's worth their grain and salt will buy up every other band that sounds similar to that in hopes to capture that magic. Pulse Ultra kind of got lost in the shuffle of the new metal early 2000s thing but they sort of got miscategorized and I think it hurt them in the long run. I think they're a really cool band and we're going to have a really interesting conversation. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. They put out one major label album. Nobody's ever heard of them and they deserve their credit. We'll dive into it some more later, but until next time I am danger and that is monster. And this has been breakdowns for breakfast. Rock on.